After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. back dave this is ragu marcus and 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 david and hi ragu hi uh, david ragu's in um, Asheville. i'm in riverdale new york and uh, soon we'll actually be in the same room and uh, that'll be nice but we're doing this you know via the miracles of modern communicative electronic tools. communication um uh, so uh before we got on here david was okay i'm i'm telling you know kind of secrets and stuff we're sharing on this show a little bit more than we might plan to at different times mm -hmm. but david was saying you know th there's i don't know what was going on is it raining a lot there dave is that what's going on something is depressing whatever uh i heard it's raining there a lot so he says do they um do they burn bodies in benares this is a question for you all folks uh, do they burn bodies in Benares if you're not quite dead yet? And I said, no, I, I don't think you'll qualify on that level uh, at all. Uh, we no, I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting that they did something legal. It was just that I thought maybe I could go there and, you know, shorten this, this samsara and just go, okay, it's enough. Um, I, I, you know, Homeland isn't as good as it was. New York, <laughs> New York Giants are 0-6. I actually watched that, uh, as I, I sick tried, as I am. I tried to, but, you know, I, I don't like to cry when I'm watching television. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Um, so, anyhow, uh, yes, no, there's plenty of good reasons to think of going... Benar By the way, Benares in India is right on the banks of the Ganges River, the famous Ganges River in India, and Benares is where they have been burning uh, body. People go there to die, and they burn bodies 24-7 in Benares, if you can imagine that. For the past thousands and thousands of years, this has been going on there. And when we first went to India, this was a great... We would go there. Uh, the other thing, of course, was that uh, they had what's called bung, bung lassies there. That's... Uh, taking uh, marijuana and uh, turning it in, you know, getting it completely ground down and mixing it with um, almonds and yogurt. And so it's a fantastic drink. And you drink this thing and you're on acid for, you know, for hours, okay, because it's so strong. So that was the first thing. We'd all go to Benares and hang out by the burning ghats, ghats, which are the... Uh, embankments along the river with many steps and right there is the burning gods and we go hang out there soon so uh, anyhow david reminded me that so uh, i don't want to uh, i'll tell this story briefly that um 
my father was told by my guru named Karoli Baba, he basically told me to give my father acid when he first came to India. So it's my famous little story because my father actually did it. And he was like an entrepreneurial businessman uh, from Montreal, where we're from. Anyhow, it was uh, a sight to see. And we were on a houseboat right by these burning ghats. And so, David, of course, you reminded me uh, by your comments about how to uh, get in line over there. And uh, there is quite a line, by the way. Those bodies are, I mean, it, it's not like there's a break. Can you? There's no break. It's just constant. It's not the only place where they burn bodies, but it's the main p- p- place uh, along the river there, right in front of the city. So we were in a houseboat, living in a houseboat, and my father took this acid on a houseboat. Oh, I don't know. It was about 150 yards from the burning guts. And, you know, he had a trip because he was a World War II bomber. He didn't think he was afraid to die because he had been, you know, he made it through without dying World War II. The rest of his squadron did not, except for one other person. So he had a rather large ego and, uh, you know, pretty much in in, uh, denial, big time denial. So... uh, Maharaji gave him the dynamite, which was this acid that a friend of mine gave me. We gave it to him. And the next thing you knew, on this houseboat, he got stoned on acid. My 50-odd-year-old dad. Uh, And uh, my brother uh, and I and my um, first wife were all standing around him going, what in the world can happen to this guy? Anyhow, we got off that boat he was, you know, we kind of just led him through the streets of Benares from the river. The first thing we found was this dead donkey becoming bloated, right? And, you know, just keeled over and died basically in front of us. And then we went walking through the streets, which are these tiny alleys with shops one after another of amazing stuff from silks to uh, to pond to beetle nut, you know, chewing tobacco stuff, which is every second store. And then suddenly there's a body, just like the donkey. This guy fell down and we didn't see him fall down, but he had just died and people were gathered around. He was obviously really poor. That's a problem because you pay for the, the family pays for the wood and wood, you know, is not a commodity. It's not like here or, you know, where I used to live in Canada where wood is like nothing. Here, wood is a major deal and you got to pay for it. And so we stood around with my father, stoned on acid with this guy who had just died and people were putting uh, money, rupees, right by the body. The more money you had, the more wood you can get. So your body is completely burned. That's why, I mean, a lot of times, I've been in that river and you see parts of, this is really ghoulish, isn't it, for this podcast, but uh, they have dolphins that uh, they (laughs) live, uh, freshwater dolphins that live in the Ganges and feed off of some of these bodies that don't get completely burned. So Dave, when you go down to Benares and you're ready for all of that, make sure you have at least a couple of thousand rupees with you. And that's the end of that story. I will. This is not your normal podcast. We thought we'd let you know that at this point. Um, I think we should do an ad now. Uh, That would get people probably feeling good about, uh, you know, sharing uh, their support with us at this point after we've talked about death and deprivation. Yes. Well, if you want to help us, uh, go to our website, mindrollingpodcast.com. 
and you'll see a lot of stuff there. But for now, just let's think about the fact that there are two portals on the bottom of the homepage, one for Amazon, which you know about, and Audible, which you may not, but audible.com is the, the spoken word uh, you know, books on disc or what on file, uh, the best company that does that. And uh, if you buy through those portals anything that you want from Audible, and they give you a free trial for a free book for a month, I guess, uh, or anything from Amazon, uh, we get a small percentage. And I just received two checks, and they've—it's not the first ones we've received from them. They're very honourable. It's very detailed, and it helps uh, this podcast. So do that. If you have an ad blocker, which a lot of us do, on your computer or whatever, uh, just take it off for the purpose of using those portals on our website because you won't see them otherwise. And then you can turn it back on again if you want. Okay, that's the ad. That's uh, it. That's it. And donations are are uh, and, and several of you have donated to us, and it's just. That's you know, unbelievable, huh? It is. It's like, I can't believe it. And, you know, so we love you out there. I won't bore everyone else by giving the names and everything, but you know who you are, and I've written back to you, and thank you so much. But it helps. And this does, you know, this does need some resources to keep it going. Okay, so that's the end of that. Um, the I'm resources? Right. It yeah. needs donations so donations. that you can have enough money to get enough wood to completely burn your body, okay? That's right. That's right. Not your normal podcast. Yeah. Now, I wanted to just uh, spin off there with the word poor, because you mentioned uh, that the, the, the body was of, of a being that was poor, obviously, and, um, you know, poor in India and poor in the United States, no matter how bad it gets here, are two very different things. And just riffing off that, um, Raghu, you, um, as you usually do, which is amazing, you found a, another great article from the New York Times, um, written by a friend of ours, a very good friend, Daniel Goleman, who for many people is known because of his marvelous book, Emotional Intelligence, which sold over a million copies, I guess, and his other books. Uh, but he was there um, in India with Raghu and, and Ramdas and the rest of them. And he's a, an amazingly uh, profound human being, interesting guy. But this article he wrote is very... Um, Apposite, if that's the right word, to what's going on right now. I know date it. It's late 2013, and the government was shut down, and the debt ceiling crisis, and all this stuff. And um, what Daniel Goldman talks about here in this article is the rift between rich and poor, but not in terms of, of money, but in terms of the way people treat people who have less status than themselves, be it financial, be it class, be it fame, be it whatever, that they've proven, and Daniel goes into this in great detail in this article in the Times, which we'll put a link on our website for you, uh, about the way uh, richer people or people with higher status look down on other people, it seems obvious, but what's less obvious is the way they treat other people who've got less status or money or whatever than themselves, the way they look at them, the way they think about them, and most importantly, he extrapolates the way the government reacts by the people who are elected to Congress who are in a bubble, most of whom are quite wealthy. Uh, there are many millionaires in Congress, many. And uh, Daniel in this article says, because of gerrymandering by the Republican Party in the last 10 years, um, districts are now wholly Republican. And th they are speaking to the choir all the time, and they, they just don't want to know about the poor people in Mississippi or in New York City for that matter and therefore entitlements are getting cut and Daniel mentions in the article that food stamps were recently cut quite largely actually and when you think about that that one F-16 I believe 
are one F-16, which we never use, by the way. Where are we using them? Canada. I mean, we're not using them except for insane wars, which we're not, not doing anymore. One F-16 would solve the poverty in uh, the United States for a year or something. something. That could be completely wrong, but it's some Enormous. obscene thing like that. Mm. And so it's quite weird that these enclaves of power in the United States have created a situation where um, one set of the public doesn't know the other set. Forget that they don't like them. They just don't know them. So I guess that's the end of a long wrap. And uh, I just wanted to read something, Raga, and then we can talk. He says, higher status people, higher status people are also more likely to express disregard through facial expressions and are more likely to take over the conversation and interrupt or look past the other speaker if, in their mind, they deem that other speaker, speaker has a lower status than them. And that's just like a little metaphor. You've all been at parties, haven't we? where you say hello to someone that you sort of know, and they look at you and they don't remember you, that's fine. But more important, they look at you and they think, well, he's a nobody. Um, I'll talk to him for a minute, but meanwhile, he's just looking, or she is looking over your shoulder to find someone who's more appropriate to talk to because they know who they are or whatever. We've all noticed that. We might all have done it. You can't be too judgmental about this because we all have degrees of sort of weird conditioning that makes us uh, less empathetic for people who are, say, for instance, poorer than us. So that's the gist, one of the things that, that and, uh, of Daniel's article. So what do you think about that, Roger? Well, well I, I, uh, I will say, David, you have to turn down your volume. To start I do? With. Sorry, folks, little technical thing. Yeah. Your volume. Yeah. Um, so... I would say, uh, I mean, my, my personal experience uh, recently um, is around uh, Eckhart Tolle, who obviously hobnobs with major people, is an extraordinarily successful author and speaker, and uh, someone that I had uh, my own little prejudgments about um, and when I met him, and I met him with Ramdas, and so we did you know we had never met him ramdas had talked to him on the phone and he came over for lunch and there was a number of people in the room including some of a couple of the a few of the people that support ramdas uh related to his stroke um and and just you know support the house and so on and so forth um young kids like 20 21 22 years old and eckhart walked in and i you know as I said, I had some prejudgments going on just about the what I thought was new agey, you know, kind of stuff that he was redoing based on Be Here Now, which he, by the way, later said, without Be Here Now, there wouldn't be uh, the power wouldn't of be now. The power of now. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So um, he walked in, and Ramdas was sitting in the center of the room. And this, the, one of the, this young guy was just uh, closer to the front door where he had come in the room. He did not go and immediately ignore everybody and just go to Ramdas. He, in, he absolutely greeted this young man and, and gave him a, re, a presence. I mean, he, he gave him that moment. You know that other thing that we talked about all the time? Uh, I talk about all the time since we found it, that Simone Wheel um, quote, you know, that, uh, 
giving someone your attention is the most radical um, thing that you can do in life. Uh, I forget what exactly it is, but it meant that. And that's what he did. He absolutely, everybody, and you know, who, on his way there, he didn't just turn everyone aside. He didn't not look completely, totally, and encounter them, you know, um, in their eyes and, and, and allowed himself to be in a moment with those people. So, which proved to me that he's real. I mean, that because uh, he had no cause whatsoever to act in any, in any way. Uh, like that. If he had come and just said hi to Ram Dass, nobody would have thought of it. I mean, I, I'm thinking of it now. So, uh, and, you know, and like you, I've been in many situations where you're with a, 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 you know, a person, you know, either somebody I had been working with who uh, I remember, you know, owned a very large company, was a multi-billionaire, and uh, I was in the music business, and he um, it was another one of these people who did not turn away from people that were not either on his level financially or power-wise or celebrity-wise. He was a celebrity in the tech world. Um, so I have actually encountered, I mean, these are two things I'm thinking of that are positive, people who act, did not have their egos running out of control. So these people that Danny's talking about are, are people that are obviously so completely self-absorbed absolutely have not got the space. There's no gap there whatsoever so that they can just be with somebody, no matter what their status is, no matter what their level of, uh, you know, wealth is, none of that. And uh, anyone who's doing that, um, they're just terribly caught. And I, you know, but what I think he's speaking of this also in political terms, right? Or social, social, social terms. Well, Uh, he says, do you have more? No, no, go ahead. I just He says at one point, the most or the more powerful were less compassionate toward the hardships described by the less powerful, and then extrapolates that to politics. So in other words, a lot of these, I'm sorry either if you're all like conservative Republicans, but you know, we're just being honest here. A lot of these right-wing Republicans, uh, you know, are really hostile to the poor in this country, which is disgusting. And what he's saying is that this comes from Prejudice is brought about by conditioning in various regions of the world and in America in childhood, and then people become oblivious to the sufferings of others and are actually hostile to them. Mm. So it's like, you know, welfare mothers, food stamp, you know, people are buying, you know, Twix bars with food stamps, like that's, you know, going to send them to, to hell. And it's there. And I think what Daniel's saying is that from an individual microscopic level, you know, just a microcosmic really, uh, you know, of, of people sort of dissing you or not wanting to know about you on a day-to-day level, uh, you know, um, through to the politicians who are supposedly representing everyone, not representing the poor at all. Right. Not at all. In contrast with other politicians that we've seen, just to be positive, who were the exact opposite. Robert Kennedy Jr. from our way back times, uh, coming from an elite family, you know, was amazing, apparently, um, and mm. and showed that in his later life he changed. So it's not a question of all politicians being bad or whatever like that. I, I, I can't, that would be ridiculous to say that. But there's an element now that wants to shield itself from the sufferings of those people having a hard time with this economy in the United States, particularly in terms of health care. I mean, it's like these guys who were against Obamacare, occasionally they'd slip and they'd say, yes, we're against health care. You know, they'd be on Chris Matthews or something on MSNBC, and then they'd catch themselves. No, we're against Obamacare because someone would jump in real quickly and go, "Yeah, but you're really against healthcare, actually." 
I mean, right. for people who can't afford it. Entitlement. Why? You know, they're completely yeah, against any kind of entitlement. Yeah. I mean, the idea, they won't mess with Social Security or Medicare because there were 64 million seniors in the United States. And anybody who messed with that would have never be elected. The party would not be elected for six elections ahead. But they will mess with other things. And surely there are things that are, you know, wrong within bureaucracies. But the general thing that I think that Danny Goldman's saying is that it starts off on a personal level of feeling your ego telling you you're better than this person and you're not going to associate with people who are not at least your peers. And so it, it then kind of extrapolates to political representation being meaningless. You know, I you have know? to say, I don't even think that they're thinking that. I think that they actually are not thinking anything but what is what is the best advantage that I can have in a room full of people to serve my purpose? Sure. And so they're not even just thinking, I'm not going to associate with that. I won't even say hello to the janitor on the way up the stairs or anything. And when they go in a room, they're zeroing in on everything, only one thing. How do I get what I need to get done? To, to, how does my position get uh, served? How does my, uh, you know, if, if it's a, a business thing, you know, how do I increase what I have? You know, in the most gross level, obviously, people are thought patterns are way more subtle than all that. Uh, so, but I, I think, so that's a level to me of ignorance. I mean, this is just absolute ignorance that uh, you, when you are completely interested in nothing but self. So everything that is, you know, every moment that you're out there, you that's all that's of interest to you. It's how that can get served. So I, I, you know, I go back to to I, I, you know, and I think in this case, Danny's just pointing out a reality that is that is really affecting us terribly in terms of being able to really serve the people in this country. And unfortunately, there's many people who support Ted Cruz and, um, you know, apparently half the, you know, well, maybe not half the country in his case. I mean, he's apparently rapidly going down in terms of popularity. But at the same time, there's a, a, a way in which this becomes just common. Nobody's going to think twice about this. Okay. We, we want these people to get rid of government, get rid of entitlements. And the fact that they have no compassion at all towards the plight of people uh, who, you know, it's like, let's, we're going to support the middle class and the poor people, well, too bad, you know, that kind of thing. So it's just the level of ignorance. Um, so this leads me to uh, the other thing that we talk about on this podcast a lot. And that is, what is one of the most effective ways that in which you can help change what's going on now and I, i'm going to you know give you uh give you these words that i would say and coming from the dalai lama i uh, just the other day as you know i was in atlanta the dalai lama was uh talking there he was in emory college for a few days and the first day was open to the public and they talked about secular ethics his thing you know around you do not need to be part of any religion any tradition you but there is no doubt that the you know uh a purpose we have in light 
life is be more compassionate person, be a more kind person, um, be a forgiving person. You know, all of the moral imperatives that uh, are, and he is working with scientists to prove this out, where they're testing babies and so on and so forth, around empathy and compassion and kindness and all of it. It's a fascinating work. Anyhow, he discussed a lot of that. Uh, but at one point, he said, in relating to this very difficult world, world that we live in, in terms of the economic disparities, in terms of the environment, uh, in terms of the general us and them, you know, uh, completely leaving out the fact that we are completely uh, interconnected. There's no way that governments are going to change that, he said. There's, and then he went on, there's no way the Congress is going to change that, nor is the White House going to change that. There is only one way that change is going to happen in all of these areas, ultimately, and that's when you change your own insights. And he said that. And it's what we've been, you know, we talk about a lot around social action and what to do about this stuff. We talked to Duncan Trussell about it on, on his show when he said to us, what do you think? I mean, does it get to the point where they're eavesdropping on everything we're doing that you have to react violently? And, and, and so, you know, we, we've talked about this issue that the f obviously there, uh, that's without a question, not anything that would be sane whatsoever in terms of, uh, you know, reacting in a violent manner. But certainly to do any, that doesn't mean you don't march and do what you got to do or don't appear in, in, in public in support of issues. But nothing can happen in, in, until we really start to change, you know, ourselves, in, until we completely um, work on, on our consciousness, you know, day to day, minute to minute. I mean, that that's got to be, you know, and that's what His Holiness the Dalai Lama says all the time and uh who is uh, there isn't a greater human being that i know of than him so um that's what i get out of this article aside from the fact that he's you know he's pointing out something that as if this keeps going the way it's going though it'll become uh, you know we will become a more callous nation to each well, other and the rest of the world yeah i mean he's saying at the end he's sound saying, like a, a some kind of political well, operative know, Democrat. Is, I'm not. I'm Canadian, and I don't even no, identify more, here. I'm much more, you know, sort of strident about this. But you know, Danny does say at the end of his article that you know the um, the gap between the economic gap will be impossible to close without addressing the empathy gap. So that's uh, what he's saying. So he's saying the it, same thing. Yeah, that just what you just said, which is so true. And John Lennon said it to me with you know when he said if you can't you know, change your heart, change your mind, you can't change anybody else's in that song Revolution from 1969 and the Beatles, which was, you know, I'm not going to carry pictures of Chairman Namau because you're all angry anyhow. You just got to change your life inside yourself. And that's, it sounds a little pontificating, but it, it is the way one changes. And I mean, um, it, it's interesting to see people who have changed uh, from a position of being dominated by the ego and, and, and very materialistic and very contemptuous of people who were who were unsuccessful or wouldn't even talk to people who were, and certainly didn't want to do anything to help people. And I think that's actually changing for the better, because I do. I really do think that's changing for the better. I think people are far less, uh, on the whole, 
you know, but then you've got the people that run the country. And as His Holiness says, you can't rely upon those people because they're there because they're power seekers, not because they're necessarily public servants. There are amazing public servants. I think Elizabeth Warren is one of them. Uh, I think that um, Barney Frank from New York is one of them. I know Jerry Nadler is one of them, a congressman from New York who are from 9-11 World, you know, uh, trade World Trade Center areas, Jerry Nadler's district, and he spent his whole life working for the underprivileged mm -hmm. in New York City. So there are amazing politicians, and it would be so wrong to cast from the brush. But obviously, His Holiness knows more than anyone about this. He he was actually um, uh, really aggressed upon in the worst way by uh, uh, you know by an authoritarian nightmare, yeah. and and yet he still maintains. Is cool because he's he's a, a advanced, evolved being, you know. But I think Daniel Goleman, to get back to the article, um, is saying that unless um, we learn to love each other, uh, you know, like Rodney King said, or as Tony Soprano on The Soprano says, yeah, can't we just be like Dr. Martin Rodney King and, <laughs> and just get along with everybody? That's what Tony said at one point. He meant well, but. Um, Ronnie King, to me, that was the greatest statement ever made. Can't we all just get along? And I mean, that is only going to come from inside. Now, the question is, how do you make that happen? Well, you know, just by doing your bit and doing it, and then maybe you can, uh, you know, extemporize and then go from your bit to being socially active. So that, um, for instance, one of my friends in New York, uh, she is a fantastic artist and singer and amazing woman, uh, but spends much of her time um, and has most of her life involved in all kinds of things like fighting NYU that are destroying low-income housing in lower Manhattan to build bigger and bigger dorms and other things and wiping out whole neighborhoods where poor people have lived for a long time where they can no longer be because of gentrification. She's doing that right now. She goes on marches. She does it. She's sincere. And it works. It, ultimately, if everybody did it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it does have some effect. But she's obviously done work on herself, maybe not... Uh, she has. Yeah. She has, but she's not. Uh, she would not characterize herself as, quote, a spiritual person, just right. as someone who can't pass someone on the street who's suffering without going over to them and helping them. Well, she's just like that. You know, let, that's, let, let me tell you a... a Janine, I'm talking about you. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you a great story that, that exemplifies the fact that you do not need to be part of any spiritual tra tradition to do the right thing. When, when the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, got up to start speaking the other day in Atlanta, after about a couple of minutes, he, he started to introduce what he wanted to talk about, and then suddenly he stopped and he went, oh, oh, there's my friend, my, my hero, he's in the audience, my friend, I've got to go down there. He s steps away from the, mic the po microphone, uh, the podium, and he he starts whining. He has tons of security. I mean, you know, there's helicopters flying around this place when he comes in and out. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So a, a phalanx of security follow him into the. It's like Bruce Springsteen or something. It was unbelievable. And he went into the crowd and he met this man, and you could see on the monitor him embracing the man, and then going back up and and uh, to to the stage, and he said, "I have to tell you who who this is. He's my old friend. He's my hero." When he was 10 years old, he was shot by the British Army uh, in, in the middle of his forehead, uh, or lowered down, right by his eye, and he went blind. In Ireland. In Belfast. Yeah. And he went blind. And he, and 
he said, I met him uh, maybe 15 years ago when, he, when His Holiness uh, went to Ireland. And the, so this guy, so his family was devastated. He never could see again. He ended up, he did not hate them. He, did not, he met his, the shooter years later, and he forgave him, and they became close. Okay? He, and his holiness, why he's saying, this is my hero, he said, this guy had no practical background whatsoever in, in any spiritual tradition. He was a Catholic, but he was not, you know, following that, you know, in a way that would have supported the, the uh, state of mind that he easily flowed into and the actions he took after that. They were all positive. He ended up marrying some, he said, uh, his holy, he's a beautiful lady. They had two great children. He could never see them. Can you imagine that? You know, and he, he created a foundation to help people in, a, in, in similar um, circumstances that uh, young people, they'd get, um, you know, shot or harmed in these conflicts. And uh, so he, 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 he kept calling him over and over. He's my hero. And, you know, there's a being like this that can actually, you know, I mean, how many people would have just turned into a bitter, screwed up person with no purpose in their lives? Never mind forgiving the guy who shot you. So uh, pretty amazing stuff. So they're, they're totally, and that's why His Holiness is promoting all the secular ethics you don't need to come from a spiritual tradition. You that these things can be nurtured just absolutely as you know that can be common. Just uh, I, my thing is just channel your anger. Like yesterday, I decided to channel all my anger at OS seven on my iPhone <laughs> instead of like yelling at someone. I just yelled at it for a while because it had eliminated my passwords from everything. Um, <laughs> and, and yes, yes. And I was just huh. in dire straits. And I just yelled at it tremendously using the worst imaginable curse words that I could come up with. That's um, because you're an effete iPhone user. Right. And then when I got over it, I was so lovely to the people I was at dinner with. Oh, were you? I was just delightful. I, I had no anger left in me. I think anger is a, a lot about this. I mean, seriously, you know, that... Um, I do still find myself yelling at the TV screen, uh, you know, when people just lie and are lying usually about the state of other people that they don't know. Like, for instance, people talking about other uh, races or religions in a very, very negative way. And, um, you know, I, 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 I've mentioned before a name drop coming up here that I worked uh, quite a lot with Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. And... Roger wrote a series of songs when I worked with him that I did videos with, uh, which were about children getting um, bombed in Middle Eastern countries by larger powers using proxy countries. And he'd actually been done some investigation of how many children had been killed in collateral damage. And he was always saying that it's extremely important that people know that this goes on, but the media doesn't talk about it really. And uh, he wrote a, a, an amazing poem, actually, about a child that had died as a result of a, a, an American raid in the uh, Iraq war. Um, these facts are important to us. And the Dalai Lama, 
is trying to let us know that by reacting with anger, uh, it ain't going to do any good. Now, Roger had anger in him also, but he, he channeled it into these poems and songs hmm. to try and let people know. Like, you know, when you see the wall, for instance, it's full of anger against the classism and, and, and real weirdness of the, of the English school system when he and I were growing up there, um, how it, it doesn't enable you to have respect for people of other classes, just like in Daniel's column here, um, how you, you just look down on people, how people who are not from Britain or even from England are somehow in some sense inferior. And the wall is, is, is about that brainwashing that goes on to children in, in, in England. And so Waters has always had a history of trying to make his art talk about the people who are getting fucked, you know. I mean, he's not a particularly friendly person himself. It's got nothing to do with that. It's more like that's how he channels his, his rage about, you know, he was so angry with Tony Blair because of his support of George Bush Jr. that he couldn't say his name. And he was so enraged with Blair. He was ashamed to be English because he felt that that war was a murderous thing from the start. And he's a rock star, okay, so big mm -hmm. deal. Uh, but what about people who are not rock stars, you know, who don't have an outlet? Uh, then, you know, um, someone wrote to us, Raghu, a couple of days ago saying that we'd mentioned go to Vipassana. So he went to a Vipassana retreat in Sri Lanka based on something we said. No, I didn't. Yeah. Oh, wow. and, and he was so grateful given the fact that I could probably never do a real Vipassana but he was so grateful that we brought it up because he said it just chilled him so much and made him see as he put it where the real problems lie I thought it was just such a wonderful mm. letter he wrote to us because he was saying he saw in himself right. all of this anger and whatever it was and was able to at least secrete some of it and get rid of it if, even if it comes back it won't come back as strong so I guess it comes back to saying that but you know you, as you said the Irish gentleman who was shot was not a Buddhist or, a, you know. Nothing. He was able to do it because he had the kindness in his heart. But not all of us are born with that. I mean, it would be false, wouldn't it, to say that we're all born with the same sort of quotient of natural charity and charitableness and, and yeah. benevolence. It's just not true. Yeah, but, now, uh, but in the case of your father, but this is so interesting. I met your father not that many times. He was always, like, extra specially wonderful to me. Like, so funny and and so bright and so just so attentive to get back to Simon Weil's thing that Das was very kind to me. And so that's interesting too, that there's a man that you describe as being quite tyrannical when he was your father <laughs> in the younger age, but he changed. Yeah. I mean, I never saw anything coming out of him except. But that's that's a wild miracle. He was, you know, he was dynamited <laughs> by my guru. I mean, you know. Well, you, you know, know, the listen, universe wanted him to bomb Nazis first. Yeah, you know, he was supposed to, to bomb Nazis. Nazi and, and he, yes, he did that in North Africa. Um, so <laughs> you he, know what? He grew. I'm right. thinking. I'm th yes. No, it's absolutely true. And His Holiness is talking about. How this can I mean, his solution, by the way, to this whole deal is mother's love. He talks over and over and over about the importance. If you're nurtured and loved by your mother at an early age, that is the entire difference uh, and, and, uh, you know, related to everything we're talking about in growing up and becoming a, a, you know, a compassionate human being. It's, he talks about his mother, my mother 
totally, he even told the cutest story of his mother. They were villagers and she was working in the fields and he, she would take him and he'd be on her back. He'd remember being on her back and, and he then treat her like a horse. Giddy up, go left, go right. He told this whole story. It was just so precious. And he was just saying she would do whatever I wanted because she loved me so much. I mean, it was just fantastic. I want to move on to something here because, uh, uh, and it's a little bit, uh, but that's such a huge thing that you just said. I mean, it's just so fundamental and so completely right again, right again, your yes, holiness, holiness yes. you know, mother's love. That's the ultimate milk of the beginning of compassion and, and of living with the 7 billion and other people on the earth. Yes. It's really, you don't, that's, if that ain't happening, aberrations Nothing. creep in, even yeah. Freud knew this. Yes. Obviously Freud knew this. Yeah. Um, so but, I want to talk anyway. about. Uh, Danny Goleman, uh, you, you've talked about, and of course, I've, uh, as you said, Danny was, in, uh, in fact, when I first got to India, Danny was there, Krishnadas, some of you out there know who he is as well. Uh, if you don't, write to me uh, and uh, through the mind-rolling thing, and I will send you a lovely song of Krishnadas, who's a great, great singer, and uh, just the... Th- uh, I want to talk about Danny because, you know, we've known each other a long, long time. And Danny has, Danny is close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, has done a lot of work with him uh, related to uh, neuroscience and, uh, you know, all the work that they do to, to show through scientific means that everything that His Holiness and the Tibetan tradition has been about for the last, uh, you know, thousand years or so uh, is about uh, inner science. And so they're taking outer, you know, and it's all meeting and Danny's at the forefront of all of that. Um, but I just want to say something else. And this is, uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a plug for Danny, but it's uh, it's related to, uh, you know, somebody did write to us and say something to the effect. A couple of people. Gee, if you listen to David and Raghu on Mind Rolling uh, they're great and all of that stuff. Uh, but if you don't know about, and I guess spirituality, or in this case, they talked about if you don't know like who Ramdas is, um, you know, it, it it sounded like they were saying it might be a little arcane. Now, we don't believe that. And, you know, we try and be as plain spoken and uh, natural and, and, and just, you know, describe this through our own experience and not in any kind of uh, selling of any tradition uh, whatsoever. Um, But I'll have to say, I have people uh, who want to have some grip on really being able to get balance and peace, uh, you know, peace, shit words, uh, you know, they just don't mean anything. I mean, I like balance because, you know, we can all relate with going off track, you know, either getting emotionally tied up and getting angry or getting jealous or getting, you know, whatever it is, hooked on whatever. Um, There is absolutely a way to deal with this. So I bring Danny up because Danny wrote a very famous book that many of you listening, I'm sure have an idea uh, and have read it or heard of it. And it's called Emotional Intelligence. Go to mindrolling.podcast.com and go through our Amazon portal 
and buy that book, and we get a couple of shekels. See, I got that thrown in there, Dave, but I am not... Very skillful. Very, very very skillful. But Danny's book, I have to say, I was in a meeting recently. uh, I'm on the board of another foundation, and... And there got we got into some rather intense back and forth, and uh, to the point where one of the people in this meeting had a tremendous emotional reaction, as if he was being attacked, as if he was going to be he was being singled out as uh, you know as somebody who um, was uh, not supporting what it was that we were all purposefully trying to accomplish. And he felt attacked. Common thing. And I tell you, we talked about emotional intelligence and what that means and how to to uh, acknowledge um, and witness some of the things that, that uh, you know, you perhaps have been blind to. And seeing your, you know, the intensity of emotional reactions comes from a cause. And in Danny's book, Emotional Intelligence, he, it is a, uh, a wonderful, wonderful way for people to get a grip on understanding uh, how to get uh, control of, uh, of, of witnessing these emotions so you're not following them down. You know, and you don't get lost. Like in, for a moment, this friend of mine got—he's uh, a friend. He's on this board, but he's a friend. He got, you know, lost in his—in this case, you know—tremendous anger because he felt he was being attacked, and he could not see it for a second. He was so lost in it. There is a way out of being lost in all of the things that we get lost in, minute by minute, every day. And, um, and there is, and, and to me, and what, what we try, you know, I mean, I hope we're not being too arcane on these podcasts, but we're just trying to help ourselves and everybody else at least always come back to the fact that there's a way that the only real interesting trip in this life is consciousness and working on that consciousness is it's got to be the priority for got to be. Okay. Here's a got to be no got to be. But I feel, I mean, you know, that, that there is, uh, that should be a priority. And it goes back to everything in Danny's article. I mean, how else is anything going to change unless we're willing to take a good look at ourselves? Okay, and enough of that. We, yeah, and how are we going to change to deal with an expanded consciousness rather than a contracted one, you know? I but, mean, as Chen Buddhists say with some firmness that there are 84,000 discernible disturbing emotions but interestingly enough they also say that in the teachings of of those lamas there are 84,000 ways or techniques to deal with them and i know those are just numbers but they firmly believe this and that therefore you know if you can just get some kind of hold upon when you're getting out of control that's been something i've been working on for ever and even though it still sometimes can be uh, overwhelming and you just get out of control for a second, uh, there's no question about the fact, like Draga just said, that you know, as you find a way to be able to witness yourself doing that, eventually it becomes embarrassing. It's like, who is this person within me that's doing, reacting with such anger and also not showing love or compassion for anyone except this ego, not even for your real self? Or so being honest. 
I mean, yeah. honest, being honest with yourself is a big deal. All right, I, I'm switching completely because yeah, this is... Do, yeah, the, yes, uh, we're, we're getting to... Uh, yeah, yeah. We're preaching to each other. Yeah, it's hard. It's like bullshit. Um, <laughs> David, did you meet John Lennon? Yes, I did. Okay, tell yeah. me about that. I just think... Well, because I mean, it was his, his uh, you know, uh, anniversary the other day in the yeah. last sometime. I, I only... Well, um, when I say I met him, it was for a very brief moment. I was in his company a few times, didn't talk to him. But then one time I had this experience, which was actually astonishing. Um, John Lennon played with a band called Elephant's Memory after he played with the Beatles. The Plastic Ono Band was his first band. Mm -hmm. after, But Elephant's Memory was a New York street band, an R&B band that played strict like sort of like Springsteen's like the E Street Band that kind of music with honking saxophones mm -hmm. and Lennon fell in love with them he was living in the West Village and he met them all and they became his band so they released a record uh, and John sang on it it was just called Elephant's Memory and they decided to have a party at Mercer Arts Center downtown at that time it was like 1972 or something and I was invited and I went. And when I got to the club, as you walked in, there were bright, clean lights shining on the small area where, because of the name of the band, Elephant's Memory, was a baby elephant. Wow. I was with my then wife, and we sort of looked, and we didn't even smile. And then I stood close to the elephant and realized that the elephant was in some way sweating and was extremely nervous, and it made me, freaked me out. I was just waiting like everybody else for John Lennon to come and for Elephant's memory to come. And um, I was so appalled that and Ronnie and I talked about it quickly. And I said, I'm going to go and talk to the manager. And I went to the manager of the club who I knew and said, you know, this elephant is experiencing some kind of suffering and nervousness. I'm not surprised. It's got lights on him and people are yelling and drinking. So could you do something about that? Because I can't just stand here. And he said, get the fuck out of my office. Who the fuck do you think you are? This is fucking John Lennon. You fuck, get out of here. I left, and as Ronnie and I walked back to the elephant, John Lennon and Yoko Ono walked in, and they walked straight to the elephant, and John yelled very loud, what the fuck is this? Wow. And the manager came running, it was a really great story, this actually, and the manager came running, and I said, oh, John, you've got here, he said, what, forget that, why is this elephant here? And the guy said, well, we thought it would be cool, you know, because it's elephant's memory, he said, get, the, get it out of here or in, I can do him well, he went, would you please, like, get that out of here and get someone to get this animal right now? This is cruel. This is cruel. And I just remember him saying that. I was standing next to him. And then people came and took the elephant away, and Lennon and Yoko just stayed there. They didn't really talk to anyone next to me and Ronnie. And then I said to John, thank you so much for doing that. That was amazing. He said, well, that was a fucking disgrace, man. And then we all left. So that was my experience with John Lennon. Oh, Isn't that amazing. a great story? Yeah, wow, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Again, there shows somebody who wasn't going to, you know, use bullshit to support, you know, what he was doing, right? Didn't walk in there, talk about elephant in the room, right? <laughs> but notice they took no notice of me. That's another element of human nature that, I'm, that we, we've got here. Like the manager, and he knew me, but he just treated me to lower status. You know, no, I'm not going to have you tell me what to do with my publicity trick. Right. But as soon as John said it, you, I was there. I mean, I watched the guy crumble 
and just go, okay, well, we, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of it, John. We'll take care of it. We're fine. And I'm looking at him, actually glaring at him with this sort of a weird look like, yeah, right. But, um, but it's fantastic that he would choose not to, uh, you know, have the publicity stunt, which would have supported oh. the, his record and this group. That didn't ever come anywhere near his head. Right? No. I mean, most no. people would have gone, oh, wow, cool. You know, and, you know, what a great stunt this is, you know. So uh, I love that. What a great story. Absolutely. By the way, is that record... Uh, elephant what is it is it available i guess i mean i haven't actually thought about it for years but it, it, it's just called elephant's memory i guess i was now i vaguely back. remember it they were uh, early like, 70s I, yeah it was 70s and they were really good i mean they were really a hot r&b band you know with a, a you know steve bronstein i think was the name of them or steve bronson was it but lennon loved them and you know he played with a lot of local musicians in those days uh he was no snob about any of that and if I, you know, to get back to the original premise of the show, um, you know, in this article we've been quoting by Daniel Goleman, he's just pointing out that there are many levels and ripplings out of lack of empathy, and that um, it's just good to talk about examples of people who, as you did, Rago, about His Holiness or about John Lennon, but just everybody. Those are just people, the names that you know and we know, so we'll bring them up. You don't know my friend Harry, so I'm not going to talk about Harry because you don't know him, but you do know who John Lennon was. So well, the only time I ever saw him, like, be a, it was just an astounding piece of, of theater, really. And I noticed as we walked out, he was muttering to Yoko, like, how could they fucking do that? You know, like, really upset. As I was, I mean, to see an animal being used, yeah, yeah. particularly a baby elephant, think about where its atavistic reach is. You know, it's, it's somewhere in the middle of Africa or India. Yeah. No, no. Anybody <laughs> <laughs> would do that. It's absolutely yeah, really, really. crazier than a loon. You know, so I want to say that uh, we're, we're coming to the end here of our uh, mind rolling podcast. Uh, uh, David and I, and uh, we have a thought for, for the next or a, uh, you know, a future podcast and it's around the Beatles and their relationship to what they brought to, uh, changing consciousness, uh, from, you know, the, the 60, late sixties for fast forward to where we are now and their influence. And David did a, a, a wonderful, uh, video, uh, called The Complete uh, Beatles, which uh, is one of the highest-selling videos ever, um, and uh, it's it's fantastic uh, um, telling of their story. So I think, uh, hey, can we use a little of that? You know, what, are they going to come after us? Uh, they well, probably will. No, but I mean, um, yeah, we'd love to do that and try and reach out to why they have fascination, even now, you know, a million years after they were... Uh, had eight out of the top ten songs on the Billboard Hot 100 at one time, yeah. from number one to number eight, I think it was. Well, what so, they were, the phenomenon they were in. It these, would be phenomenal. Yeah. So, okay, I can't wait. I want to do so a we'll Beatles do show. But, you know, we may not be able to play Beatles songs, but we'll right. certainly... No, we're going to play. And well, all right, we're going to play. Yeah, who cares? Who, yeah, what really? are they going to sue us? Really? Our no, little they guys? they don't know about us. You're just the little guys here. All right, this has uh, been great, and thanks for uh, you know really studying Danny's article. Which I I bring these things up to David. I don't read them because I'm like you know ADD or something. And Dave reads them and really study. He's a student. He's a studier. Yeah, He's a wise man. And uh, as I said on the last, I can't do without you. 
And uh, this is Mind Rolling Podcast. Please go to mindrollingpodcast.com. You will then also see Dave's wonderful blogs that he puts up there, extras yeah, me, that he me, puts me, up. A lot of Dave yeah, going it's, on it's, here. Yeah, it's him. <laughs> and he, and please do donate because now you understand David Silver needs rupees to completely burn his entire body so the dolphins don't eat what's left. And that's uh, that's it for us. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week, Dave. Yeah, right. Good. I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right.